Have you ever been a part of a happening that was totally eclipsed by something else that went on that was unanticipated? In October, as a matter of fact, October 17th, 1989, everyone thought there would be a World Series baseball game at Candlestick Park in San Francisco, California. And they were all assembling for the game. And while they were assembling, at 5.04, a 6.9 Richter scale earthquake stole the thread. Everyone thought there was going to be a World Series baseball game that night, but the game was eclipsed by another event right in that moment that broke out. The earthquake stole the thread. The game was canceled. It altered everything about that moment. Have you ever been a part of such a happening? This last miracle of Christ that is before us this morning is such an event. The miracle completely stole the focus on his betrayal and hateful arrest. A man named Malchus had his ear put back on, though he was a part of the posse that came to the garden that night to arrest our Lord Jesus Christ. But as always is the case, his encounter with Jesus Christ changed everything about what was going on. It stole the thread indeed and eclipsed what was going on. But for us, these goings on this morning that I'm inviting you to, Luke chapter 22, this whole situation is going to bring our hearts out to our Lord and probe our response to him. It calls us out. What is our response in life? Is it more like Jesus or is it more like Peter or is it more like Malchus? As you bring your heart to the text this morning, how will God speak to your open heart? Let me read to you Luke 22. 47 to 53. In context, this is the evening of the arrest of Jesus. He will go through the trials and then head to the cross before the resurrection on that first Easter morning. Now, in John chapter 18, this event is recorded in parallel. In fact, the servant is named his name is Malchus. Also, the person who drew the sword is named, his name is Peter. Uh, Luke is the only one of the evangelists that notes the healing. Luke, being a doctor, was even careful to use fine anatomical terms to describe this incident in the report. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. 46. And he, Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And when he rose from the prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Let me just stop reading and and say that here, Jesus doesn't insult Judas or doesn't get in Judas' face, but offers to Judas the last moment of repentance to turn away from what he was going to do. That's what Jesus is like in his pursuit of us. Verse 49. And when those who were around him saw that what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Hear the word of the Lord. Now again, only Luke records this miracle. Only a doctor would note the elements of this story, and he's careful to record it, and I'm glad that he did. The Lord moved him to write this. This morning, the message is pretty straightforward. We're going to pull up next to three postures in this story. First, the posture of Jesus. Then, the posture of Peter as he faced life in a broken world. And finally, the posture of Malchus. And I ask you, which posture most well describes your posture toward our Lord in this moment? Watch Jesus. Watch the disciples. Watch Malchus. And ask how this truth and this passage probes your conscience. So first, posture number one is surrender, serenity, and oversight. What we see in Jesus is a yielded Savior controls the flow of events in the crucible of his suffering. Now the focus on this posture is a focus on Jesus. And it's a little startling to note that Jesus is fearless 
in this account. One would not imagine that uh, uh, he would have such a posture, but he gets up from that prayer, and the one person who is in command and control of the whole episode is Jesus Christ. He's not a victim here. This is a willing lamb offering himself to the Lord. Watch who is in charge of this arrest. Astonishingly, it's the one who is arrested. The one dictating the terms is Jesus Christ. Jesus follows willingly in submission to what God had placed before him and what God had appointed him. I read, for me, a probing tweet about two months ago from Ray Ortland Jr., who said, and he's, he's, he's about 71 now, so he's still young, but he said, my last act of obedience will be my death. It was an interesting, kind of a startling phrase, that he was viewing what was in front of him, including the last thing that was in front of him, as that which God would require of him to embrace in submission and obedience. Interesting. Here Jesus is facing a hard thing with obedience and faith and submission. Are you facing a hard thing this morning? You know, we've never met, but we've been in a room together, singing into our Lord and listening to his word with people who were coming out of hard things or going into hard things or in the midst of hard things. How are you doing with them? When you listen to Jesus pray, as he's pouring out his heart to the Father, He's obviously troubled. If you sample his spirit in that paragraph, Luke 22, 39 to 46, I mean, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That looks like a person. That feels like that experience is of a person who is very much pressed in the middle of the circumstance. But when he gets off of his knees in the garden, he's in a different place. It was anguish, agony, emotion at the core of his being, great drops of sweat like thick blood, as it were, were pouring off of him, and he gets up, and the one person who is in command and control of the whole situation is Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. How did he ever get there? You see, the prayer comes before the fearlessness. The prayer represents his yieldedness, his yieldedness that brought him unto serenity and peace with the circumstance. Obedience is not easy. Isn't that true? It's a challenge. 
Here Jesus responds obediently in the face of treacherous betrayal. Judas leads with a kiss. You know, from 2 Corinthians 13, 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. The early church had a practice of embracing and kissing. Our family, once upon a time, went to uh, Lisbon, Portugal, and up the coast to Ericeira, and we were at a church, and our boys were like 12 and 10. And so uh, our, our girl was like five, and or maybe a little older. But um, we told the boys, now look, uh, you need to understand this culture that uh, warm greetings are a part of the loving fellowship of the church. Uh, people assemble to follow Jesus. You know, our oldest son immediately, what? Are you kidding me? What's going to happen? Well, you know, the, the, the ladies will kiss you on one cheek and then they'll kiss you on the other cheek. And some go for the double dip and, you know, do the, the, repeat this twice. So one son giggled through it. And the other, you know, I think he's still experiencing PTSD from the whole experience. You know, the early church would cease greeting one another with a holy kiss on Good Friday in worship out of mourning the loss of Jesus. So uh, that day, they didn't kiss each other in the greeting in worship, thinking of this kiss of betrayal from Judas. But you ask, well, how did Jesus get from agony, anguish, pressed of spirit to fearless command and control, serenity Jesus in the midst of his whole arrest when he first and everybody else knew where that arrest would eventually lead? Well, there's Jesus before prayer, and then there's Jesus after prayer. And what happened in Gethsemane as he yields his will to the Father? Not my will, yours be done. What happens in Gethsemane as he pours out his heart to the Lord and expresses every vestigial of anguish in his heart about what was before him? But then he yielded to whatever the Father had for him, and he got up, and he was at peace. As I was pondering this this week, I thought of that old hymn, Trust and Obey. There's a line in the hymn that says, We never can prove the delight of his love until all on the altar we lay. It's actually an old gospel metaphor for prayer, laying our burdens on the altar crying out to the Lord for his help. It was only after Jesus surrendered to the Father's will in the circumstance that was pressing him that he experienced that peace and that serenity and that fearlessness in the face of death and demise. Could it be that Jesus was on to something when he knelt and surrendered to the Father? Are you facing a hard thing this morning? Are you facing something that's giving you a fearful heart? Are you afraid of the future and afraid of the circumstance? Do you feel anxiety about what you're facing and what the next few steps are going to bring to your life? Why don't we follow Jesus to Gethsemane and get on our knees and tell the Lord 
our agony. Tell the Lord our anguish. Tell him our worries. Tell him our concerns. And then give our will to him and embrace whatever it is that is in front of us, come what may. Because it was only then that Jesus had peace and went through it together with our Lord. You know, the old timers in a former generation used a phrase. They called it praying through. I prayed through. Now, uh, to, to some of, uh, younger folks, it's like, prayed through? What, what was wrong with them? You know, why, why'd they say that? Oh, that's, uh, that, that's from some pious... Keswick, if you like that term, Keswick kind of faith, that heart religion that a person would say something like praying through. Now, Eric, we don't do that anymore. Well, what they were describing with the phrase praying through is that they sustained a posture in prayer till they found some resolution in their spirit as they sought the Lord. And it was like they were going to dig in that trench till they struck home. And in saying, I've prayed through. And you say, Eric, oh, that's, that's, that's old heart religion. We're, we're, we're beyond that. We're on to better things now. And maybe we are, but maybe they were on to something in sustaining before the Lord a prayerful spirit till they found peace and rest in him. You know when the battle was over for Jesus? Always say, Eric, I think it was over when he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Others would argue, no, it was over on Resurrection Sunday when he was raised from the dead. What if I suggested to you that it was over when he got off his knees in Gethsemane? It was done. And he at peace fearlessly faced what he faced. Are you looking down the barrel of your own mortality? Are you looking down the barrel of hard things that are hard to face and anxiety inducing to go through? Well, how about this? Let's follow Jesus' patterns, get on our knees, pour ourselves out, yield ourselves to the Lord in, yes, using a word like surrender. We all have an outstanding will. I know that firsthand. Have to give that up to our Lord. And then when we do, there's a sweet place that we find right there. I want to know more about it. One commentator named Geldenheis said this, In the silence and seclusion of Gethsemane, where Jesus was alone with his father, he had knelt down to him in utter anguish of spirit. But now, after his final and complete surrender of himself to be sacrificed and thus to bring to fulfillment God's eternal plan of salvation, he acts with perfect calmness and fearlessness. Before his father, he had knelt down deeply in complete self-surrender. But just as in his former ministry, so now in the last stages of the way of humiliation, suffering, and death, he shows not the least sign of weakness or fear of his persecutors and judges. That he is master of the situation in the presence of his enemies, even when outwardly it seems as though he is their powerless prey, comes out forcibly strong in the story of his arrest. End of quote. Surrender, serenity, and oversight 
A yielded Savior controls the flow of events in the crucible of his suffering. Anybody need to go to Gethsemane and get on our knees and surrender to our Lord and what is before us? The second is Peter. What about Peter? What posture does Peter have? There's panic. Frightened and impatient followers of Jesus act impulsively and take matters into their own hands. Look at verses 49 and 50. Peter flails with the sword. Now clearly, he was much better at fishing than he was wielding a sword. This was not an attempt to cut a little piece of Malchus's ear off. He was going after the jugular, literally. <laughs> no doubt, Malchus weaved and bobbed in the middle of the circumstance and glanced off his head, cut off a portion of his ear. Now, why did Peter do this? There's probably two reasons. Look across the page at Luke 22:33. Full of self-confidence and bravado, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now, Jesus would disabuse him of that notion by then telling him, oh, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. But Peter's out there, oh, yeah, Lord, I'm, I'll be right there with you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to the wall with you. But Peter had said that, so he better back it up. So he may have been thinking of what he had just said earlier and, and watching this all unfold, whip out his sword and have at it. The second reason is what Jesus said in verses 35 through 37. He was helping them anticipate ministry after the resurrection and the threat that was going to come on the church as the church was established. He said to them, when I send you out, when I sent you out, this is verse 35, with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. But what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So Jesus does allude to the trouble that's coming. You may need to defend yourself, guys. Find a sword around. They want to get one. And Peter might have had that in his mind. And so they asked the question in the middle of the arrest. The great arresting crowd, the arresting posse shows up in the garden. Judas is leading them, having pre-signaled, I'll show you which one's Jesus. I'll kiss him. You'll know who he is. Arrest him. They watch all this unfold, listen to it. They realize they're here to arrest Jesus. And they ask Jesus a question. Lord, this is verse 49, shall we strike with the sword? They ask a fair question. They ask the right person to answer the question. Peter will not wait around for an answer. He has already crafted 
his own answer in his own mind, so he acts. Takes a swat at Malchus, who must have been proximate to him, and demonstrated how much more practice with a sword Peter actually needed. Peter panicked in a moment of crisis. His judgment was impaired by his fear and his passion. In March of 1981, President Ronald Reagan was shot by John Hinckley Jr. coming out of a hotel in Washington, D.C. It was a chaotic mess because he was actually bleeding internally, though conscious and speaking, and his life was threatened. He was taken off to the hospital. George Herbert Walker Bush, the vice president, was not in the White House at the time. It was a public assassination on the news, shot in real time that many people saw, and the country was unnerved. Attempting, I suppose, to settle things down a little bit, Al Haig, who was in the president's cabinet, was... Uh, at the White House, and he decided to host a hastily called press conference. At the press conference, he came to the podium, and among other things that he said was his now famous words, I am in control here. Now, the Constitution gave him no authority to do anything, and there are embedded in the Constitution rules of engagement for what's to happen. But uh, Haig was overcome by... Uh, who knows what, and went to the podium and said, I am in charge here. Sadly, that's what a lot of us remember about Al Haig, rather than the other extraordinary things that were a part of his career. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever panicked in the midst of danger and a threat? If the truth were known, is there a measure of panic harbored in your heart this morning about what you are facing. In the midst of that panic, have you ever acted impulsively and it didn't turn out well? Peter put himself in danger by doing this, and he also puts in peril, right in its embryonic stage, the Christian movement by this gesture of the sword deal in the midst of the arrest. He threatens the early Christian movement. Peter is not the first person that's ever gotten tired of waiting on the Lord. Isaiah 40, they that wait on the Lord shall have their strength renewed. Are you waiting on the Lord this morning? Let me tell you what's hard. It's hard to wait on the Lord. The only way we have patience to wait on the Lord is if we remember who he is. Andy and I uh, love her doctor uh, in our childbirthing years uh, who took care of her, the OBGYN. He's a wonderful man. He was also a congregant at the church that I pastored, and we just love he and his wife. And a part of the reason why we love him is because he was so kind to Andy and took such good care of her. And um, he loved Andy. But he also loved his patients. And 
Every woman in Springfield wanted to have him as a doctor, so it was not uncommon to go for an appointment, and the waiting area is full. Uh, but you know what? I can't remember anyone who ever got upset because we all knew who the doctor was. And because we knew his character, we knew that if he wasn't there, it was for good reason, and that things are going well, and this would eventually sort out, and we just trusted him and kept waiting. And invariably, it would sort out and work quite nicely. And we would be served by his capable practice. But it's hard to wait. Peter's waiting on an answer. All right. Shall we do something, Lord? There's no answer. He quit waiting. He decided, all right, I'm going to take this, these matters into my own hands. And he puts a torpedo through the hull of the early movement. And Jesus has to act. Are you waiting on the Lord this morning? You know what my encouragement to you is? Wait on. He's worth the wait. The third posture is malchus. It's wonder. How many of us are struck with wonder about the glory of Jesus Christ in this great kingdom of his? Malchus was struck with wonder. A changed man goes from a near-death experience to the unrecoverable experience of Christ's healing mercy. Now we ask the question, why did Jesus heal Malchus? There's a couple of reasons, and both of them are important. And the first one, really, we need to come to John 18.36 to hear Jesus talk to Pilate when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Now Jesus could not have said that if he would have ordered his disciples, yeah, you guys, now's the time to use the swords. Have at it. Let's defend ourselves. No, because his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom was not to be established with a sword, but with a cross and an empty tomb. And he could not have said what is true that he said later to Pilate without facing this egregious setback in the arrest narrative of Malchus's ear being severed. Peter, so he, he, one reason why Jesus heals Malchus is to preserve the integrity of the message of the kingdom of God. Peter almost single-handedly upended the message of the kingdom of God. It's so sober to think about how we live and the decisions that we make can distort what the kingdom of God looks like as other people look at us. Wow. That hurts. Oh, for grace from our Lord to trust him more. So 
The first reason why Jesus healed Malchus's ear was to preserve what was to be understood about the nature of his kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. We're not to take up arms and bring in the kingdom. Now, I want you to listen clear through this. This is partly an aside, but it's important. Romans 13 describes God ordaining human government to organize society, and he gave them authority to rule. In fact, it says he gave them the sword to put down evil. That one of the reasons why there is government is to keep civil order, and government has the authority to levy justice upon those who are messing up the tranquility of relating. So we're Bible people. We go to Romans 13. The government has the sword. Then we think back of Augustine thinking about the New Testament and coming up with just war theory in the 5th century. And since the 5th century, it is a Christian idea to view that there are times in global geopolitical relatedness where there are just causes to go to war, to put down evil, to use the sword to put down evil. The Nazis killing six million Jewish people in the ovens of the camps is an argument for that evil had to be faced, World War II had to be. You put that together with, and please listen clear through, this is all one sidebar, the Second Amendment to the wonderful document of our United States Constitution. The right, of course, to bear arms. And there's been no document in history that has promoted more liberty for a group of people longer than our United States Constitution. It's a remarkable document. It includes the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. But we can say, Romans 13, God's given the sword to government. Augustine, just war theory. We can all be hawks and We'd be hawks while we, you know, pack heat. Hey, right to bear arms. Let's open carry. And we can be found beating our chest. Fund the military. Fund the military. I'm for a strong military. But this whole military-industrial complex needs to be set in a context where Jesus said, he is our security and his kingdom is not of this world. Do we need a strong military? Yes. Do we need to fund our military? Yes. Do we need to find our security in our military? No. Here's Peter. He's saying, I'm going to be secure in this moment by whipping out my sword and taking care of business right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Keep thinking with me. Peter tried to use force to advance the cause of Christ. You know what Christ told him? He was out of line. Could the church in the United States be accused of trying to prosecute their ministry by force? Even as we need to stand courageously in our day. Oh, for wisdom and discernment to live well in our day. Peter was out of line. Now there's a second reason why Christ healed Malchus' ear. That is Jesus 
unstoppable love and mercy for the person suffering harm. Peter whipped out his sword and cut off Malchus' ear, part of his ear. You know what? That moved Jesus. Would it have moved you? Would it have moved me if we were Jesus? Or would we have said, tell you what, Malchus, you got what was coming to you. You shouldn't have been out here in this party arresting the sinless Savior of the world. Anyway. I've read a story once about a, a farmer who just got very, very tired of thieves breaking into this shed he had with tool assets there, and it was constantly the thieves were getting him. So he conceived of a plan. I'm going to get you, and he got this uh, contraption that discharged a shotgun shell that was related to if you breached into there in a way that you shouldn't have got in there, the gun would discharge. And so the thief comes, busts through the door, and the gun discharges and hits the thief with its kinetics. Well, of course, the thief sued and won. <laughs> uh, and I was reading about this story. Uh, but as I was reading the story, I thought to myself, you know what? You deserve what you got. And isn't that the good red-blooded American way to think about it? I mean, isn't that just worth it <laughs> in some personal form? You know what? Jesus looked at that man who had just been astonished and startled by the near-death experience. Peter wasn't seeking to chop off his ear. He was going for his head. It was a mortal blow that bad sword-bearer Peter didn't do well with and lopped off a bit of his ear. What's Jesus' response in the middle of the arrest? And what's interesting is the translation in verse 51 says this, no more of this. Now, it's actually something a little bit more difficult to translate from the original. The English Standard Version says, no more of this. Well, who's he talking to? Is he talking to Peter and the disciples? No more of this? What is he saying? Where is it going? That's how the English Standard Version Persons take it. There's an alternative reading found in the New American Standard Version that I love and I believe is a bit more accurate. And it says this. Stop. Let me at least do this. So in the middle of the arrest, in the middle of taking him into custody, boom, this breaks out. What does Jesus do? He just says, would you let me stop? Just right now, let's do this. And he reaches down and he picks what I'm going to argue, and I'll show you, a part of the ear that was cut off, and he heals him. Now, you talk about an earthquake at 504 before the first pitch went out. Immediately, the whole temperament of the event changes. How do you think Malchus felt as a part of the arresting party the rest of the evening? How do you think he looked at Jesus once before the arrest and after the healing? How do you think he looked? What about everybody else in the party? It says it's a great crowd. I think no one walked out of Gethsemane with Jesus in custody without quiet. I think it was a somber crowd. I think it was one of those, who is this that just put Malchus's ear 
back on. Now, look at the language of the text. Look at verse 50. And one of them struck a servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. There's one word for ear there. But Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear. He said, yeah, Eric, ear, ear, I get it. No, it's two different words in the original. Leave it to a doctor, Dr. Luke, anatomically attentive, to put two different words that distinguish, that are distinguished from each other. No more of this. He touched his ear and healed him. Now, the second word is a word for a part of the ear. It may be bigger than the lobe, but a part of the ear. And, and it, one of the reasons we have insight into this term is in Exodus 21, there's a description of a ceremony to go through for a slave who has been redeemed from his master. Maybe he was in debt. He had to work off an indentured service to him. Or he had worked for a period of time and then his time was over and he was going to leave. But he really loved the person that he worked for and he wanted to be attached to that person in perpetuity. And they said, okay. And so they had this public ceremony where they brought him out, put him against a post, and took a rod and drove the rod in, here's the term, that part of his ear. And that would be a sign that he would be endeared to this person that he was working for, for as long as he lived. And it was something willingly that he gave himself to. And this process is talked about in Exodus 21. And this term for taking a section of the ear and putting it against the post and drilling the rod into it, that term is the second term for ear found in verse 51. Well, why, why, you, why such a deep dive about those two terms? Well, it suggests that Peter didn't whack off the guy's ear, so if you saw him, it's like just there's a hole in the side of his head, the ear canal. No, he, he, he cut off a part of his ear. But here's Jesus who takes notice of this whole thing. No doubt it happened just like that. And, and, and he says to the party, I love it. He says to them, stop. Let me at least do this. Now notice who's in control. He reaches down, takes the part, and puts Malchus's ear back on. I mean, if you're the head of that arresting band, what in the world are you thinking in that moment? As you take him up into the custody of the high priest then, what in the world are you thinking? And aren't you beginning to get that same impression that the centurion, the, uh, the death team, remember the head of the death team, he watched Jesus die and he said, surely this is the Son of God. And that impression was dawning upon them. By the way, Malchus may have been not written by Bill Gaither in 1972. Malchus may have been the first guy to ever sing, He Touched Me. I think he was singing that as he came out of Gethsemane. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. You could not experience that without experience wonder. Like, who is this? This Jesus. Do you think the arresting party had any second thoughts? 
Do you think that healing changed the spirit of the moment? I think this is another one of those. Who is this? He even heals his enemy. Malchus is never the same. He died remembering this encounter with Christ. His name is in the text. Could be that his name is in the text because the early church knew him and Luke knew that in naming Malchus, they'd remember, oh, that's where Malchus was before he encountered Jesus and now he's one of us in this great band following Christ. How do we treat our enemies? In moments of personal crisis, are we focused on others and their needs? Jesus was. Are we terminally focused on ourselves? Do we understand that to meet Jesus is to change everything about the experience we are going through? You're going through something hard? Jesus is with us. Who are you this morning? Jesus, surrendered and submissive to what the Lord had ordained that he would go through. Have you been on your knees pouring out your heart? getting up fearless, facing what is next? Are you Peter, impulsive in action, flailing, trying to be your own savior? Afraid? Are you Malchus, misguided, going along with the crowd? Then you encounter Christ. He was changed. Are we? How is God using this story in our hearts this morning? Let's be found responsive. Let's pray. Father, by any reckoning, when Jesus comes into a situation, that situation changes and changes for the good. And right now, on behalf of our congregation, Lord, I invite you afresh into the situations that we are going through right now. Lord, move us to be people of prayer that resolve matters on our knees and not in empty attempts to resolve them in sleepless anxiety and stress that is hurting us. Help us be like Jesus and get up off of our knees fearless because we've given it all to the Father. Oh, Lord, deliver us from Peter's response, a flailing, impulsive, panicking, man, how easily we identify with him. Oh, Lord, give us the wonder that was in Malchus's heart. Move us. Shape us. What is God calling you to this morning? What is God calling you from this morning? I want you to talk to him right now. Father, we stand to sing before we leave. Let us not soon escape this moment that the Spirit of God wants to probe our hearts with. Grant that we would be found responsive. Thank you for such a great Savior in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name I pray. Amen.